Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, 2023 is underway, and this gang is going to be the year where we build the army to save democracy in 2024. I need you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up. Gang, I know you're out there. We've recruited 65,000 of your fellow Americans, and I need you to join the ranks today. Go to jointheunion.us and get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Alexander Theodoridis, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Prior to UMass, he spent time teaching at the University of California, Merced, and Vanderbilt University. His work seeks to understand the ways in which citizens interact with the political world in an era of hyperpolarization. This work has been published in numerous professional journals and been featured in a variety of mainstream outlets, including The New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN, and others. Today, he's coming to us from Northampton, Massachusetts. Alex, welcome to the show. Great to be here. All right, so there's a lot going on in your world, in the polling world. How long have you been doing survey work? I've been doing survey work since at least the beginning of my PhD. So that, you know, puts me back to about 2005. But, you know, I've, I've always been a political junkie. During my time at the Kennedy School, we certainly played around with survey data and I took classes on how to do all this stuff, but have been actually conducting my own polls for probably the last 17 years or so. Okay, so let's do a little mechanical work before we get into the substantive work, which is since you started becoming a pollster conducting survey research, what has changed both about the mechanics of polling and the environment in which you're trying to gather data? So I never got to experience the kind of golden age of survey research. Home phones. Yeah, home phones <laughs> where everybody has a phone and no one has caller ID. You know, I always tell students that there are two great art forms that have been destroyed by the advent of caller ID and cell phones. And one is survey research and the other is prank phone calling. You know, so I don't know what kids do today. I guess they're trying to hack into the Fed or something. You they're know, playing but, war games. Um, but we used to call people and make prank phone calls. And you can't do that anymore. And you also can't just randomly generate phone numbers and assume that people will answer your call. So, you know, that was a period in the 70s, 80s, early 90s. And basically since then, the industry has been trying to figure out how to deal with ridiculously low response rates, increasingly low response rates in phone surveys. And that has sort of come at the same time as a rise in online polls. Online polls are easier and easier to do. Most of the surveys that we do at the UMass poll and, and also that I do as part of my research are done online. And the bottom line is that however you're doing surveys today, and this was largely true when I was starting out, what has changed is that the ability to do phone surveys has decreased and the ability even since then, and the ability to get a good sample online has increased. Neither one is perfect. 
And so really what you have to be realistic today about polling and say, look, can a poll tell us certain things? Can it tell us who's going to win a one or two percentage point race? No, it can sort of tell us that the race is in that range. But more importantly, it can tell us important things about how people are thinking, how subgroups of people are thinking, what sorts of attitudes are associated with each other, things like that. You know, trying to explain to, I'll call them civilians, about how polling used to work, especially even today, right? Maybe even more so today. If someone has a home phone, that's a very unique thing. If someone has a cell phone and is willing to pick up a call either from something that says it's a research company or from a number they don't know, that's also very unique. But then if you are willing to spend somewhere between, let's say, 25 and 35 minutes on the phone with a perfect stranger at dinner time to talk about politics, now you've self-selected to a very narrow band of human beings. Yeah, and you can't extrapolate from that universe to everybody, right? So there's a lot of work that has to be done. This golden age, what it was defined by is in polling, what you want is you want to be able to take a population, so say like voting age adults in the United States or likely voters or whatever, and you want to be able to take a sample of that population where every person in the population has exactly the same probability of ending up in your sample as every other person. And that wasn't entirely true when you do random digit dialing, but it was much closer to true. Now, now the ways we approach polling, whether it's over the phone or online, these are not largely probability-based anymore. Um, and so now you're you're having to do work at the front end in terms of recruiting and figuring out what you know what your sample frame is going to be, and you're doing work at the back end in terms of waiting to try and extrapolate from some set of people that you're able to get to the population that you're interested in making inferences to. Right. Let me ask you a couple of real world examples that are relatively recent. So 2016, obviously, me and most everybody else who thinks they're really, really smart at this stuff was convinced that Hillary Clinton was not just going to win, but was going to win by a landslide. Didn't happen. Dan Schnur, who at the time, old friend from Berkeley, I don't know if you knew him out there, you know, who ran the LA Times poll at the time, and he, he might still, said, look, we didn't get it right. We just got it less wrong than other people because they were, I think they were focused on intensity. Who are you more excited to vote for rather than who are you more likely to vote for? Then you fast forward to just this past fall, where you see in September and October this spate of very Republican-leaning surveys come out, and you sort of see, wait, 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 what's going on? So in 2016, it's sort of like everybody's biases got thrown in the bucket, and then in 2022, it's like, oh, let's just push as much crap out into the ether as we can, because we're hoping, and they very much did, that like the mainstream media and the establishment will chase the horse race numbers, you know, and it turned out to be obviously a much closer election than anybody initially thought it could be. And certainly than what those Republican polls were showing was 2016 as big a shock to you as it was to others. And have you seen anything like we saw last fall previously? I sort of go back and forth on this. I mean, in some sense, depending on how you look at it, what's remarkable, given what we just talked about, is how accurate polls still are. I mean, given all the challenges that we just discussed, you might expect polls to just be more noise than they are signal. But in fact, they're, you know, within a few percentage points. I mean, we look at 2016 and there were some major failures and continue to be big failures in certain places. So polling at the state level, Wisconsin has seemed to be a very difficult place to poll. And I think part of that has to do with these certain type of Trump voter that tends to be underrepresented in polls. 
but really nationally, I mean, were the polls that wrong? You know, we have to differentiate between how far off the poll was and whether the poll got the direction right. So you can say Hillary was going to win by about, you know, 1% or something. And actually that poll nationally would be right because she won the, the popular vote. And even, you know, with the electoral college, it wouldn't be that far off in the sense that this was a razor thin election is what it was telling you essentially. So it was the result that shocked everybody. Yeah. So there's a big difference. You know, you get all these forecasting models that political scientists have been developing for years and years. And a lot of times there's a tendency to look at a forecasting model. I'll give you an example. There was one particular one, I won't name the social scientist who came up with it, who said that Donald Trump had like a 98% chance of winning the 2016 election. And afterwards, everyone looked at that and said, oh, look, how did you know? You were... Now, any prediction that told you that Donald Trump had a 98% chance of winning the 2016 election, an election he didn't win the popular vote in and where he barely won with the timing of the Comey stuff and you know 70,000 votes in three states, he didn't have a 98% chance of winning. It's just that everyone else got the direction wrong, but they were much closer, most of them, in terms of how close this race was going to be. Neither one of them had a 98% chance of winning. Hillary probably had a slightly higher chance of winning. But you know, if you walk into your doctor's office and they tell you that some behavior gives you a 30% chance of getting cancer, you're going to take that pretty seriously. We just don't take it very seriously when it's presidential elections for some reason. So let's fast forward now. You've been putting out some interesting information about Trump vis-a-vis -vis Republican voters. I want to talk about Trump, but I want to talk about Republican voters writ large. And one of the most interesting things that you had out in a lot of your research, and we'll let folks know where they can find your stuff to read it, was that unlike the donor class of the Republican Party, unlike the sort of, I'll call it the intellectual class of the Republican Party, although I think that's stretching the word intellectual very, very far, and to the mainstream media who roundly blamed Trump for Republicans failing to do better last November than they did. It turns out, at least from your research, that a lot of Republican voters, only about, it was a 10% of them, I think, thought it was his fault. Yeah. I mean, you know, and this is often the case, right? That there's wishful thinking on the part of elites and the media narrative in a lot of cases after the 2022 midterms and what you hear from some politicians and the donor class, as you say, elites in general on the Republican side is that, okay, well, this was clear evidence that Donald Trump is an albatross fettered to the neck of the Republican Party's electoral fortunes. And it seems like a reasonable narrative, right? His candidates did poorly, especially handpicked candidates. Uh, candidates generally did pretty poorly who were towing the sort of election denial line. I think that an important part of why Republicans underperformed. And to be clear, they underperformed relative to historical expectations, right? I mean, your listeners know enough to know that in a midterm election like this, we expect the president's party to lose seats, except in extraordinary cases. This did not look to be extraordinary circumstances because Biden's numbers were not great, his approval numbers, feelings about the economy, all those fundamentals that you look at did not look particularly good. And in fact, Republicans, you know, picked up the House. They picked it up by a tiny margin, which was less than expected, and they failed to take the Senate. And I do think an important part of that was the fact that Biden and other Democrats made the case that you've got this party out there that's attacking democracy and Donald Trump is heading it up. And that was helped by the fact that you had certain candidates who were very high profile who were 
saying the same stuff that Trump has been saying, election denial, et cetera. You still have some of them. And so I do think that was important. I also think the Dobbs decision was important. I mean, if you ask most Democrats, the thing that they said was most important to them right before the election was threats to American democracy. But if you ask young Democrats, so Democrats under 30, the number one thing they said was abortion rights. So I think both things can be true. And, you know, the other side of it is like a lot of this, again, has to do with what your expectations are, right? How you're framing this. So Republicans did not do as well as expected, you know, but on the other hand, you could look at it and say, okay, well, what would this look like kind of in a just world, in a world where things weren't so polarized in a partisan sense? You know, Republicans lost the Senate, but did they lose the Senate because of these things or did they lose the Senate because they picked just some absolute doozy candidates in certain places? I mean, Warnock could have been toast. Fetterman, you know, certainly could have been beaten by a better candidate. And the Republicans won the House. And so you might look back and say, well, you know, is this really sort of a slaying of this kind of Trumpism in the party? And I might tell you that, hey, you just had a president, certainly, who mostly, at least tacitly, was kind of followed by his party, sit back there and try to pull every thread he could to stay in power despite losing an election. And I think he knew he had lost, right? So he was trying to pull every thread to see if one of them might untangle the sweater of our democracy and let him stay in power. This is an existential threat to American democracy. It's what people like me worry the most about. And by when I say people like me, I, I don't just mean people who care about democracy. I mean scholars of polarization, right? The big fear with partisan polarization, because partisan polarization is different from the polarization we've had in the past over civil rights and Vietnam and other things like that. Partisan polarization makes democracy and elections the battleground, and it incentivizes parties, especially a party that might be naturally at this moment a minority party to do everything in their power to try and dispute the results or, or ignore the results of an election. And that's exactly what we saw. And was this party you know, forced to burn to the ground by getting 30 percentage points? No, These, it was basically another tie election. And so you know, when we look at those results and say, look at this, it's over, we, we did it, we slayed this dragon, American democracy is safe. I like to say, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. And I think, too, if you look at those same elites with their wishful thinking, remember that they were mad at Trump, not because he was the worst president, maybe in American history, but certainly he's in the top three, and not because he tried to overthrow the government two years ago, but because he cost them seats in the House, in the Senate, and in state legislatures, governors and Senate races, which means he cost them power. That's what they were upset about, which in my mind says they're no better than he is. And by the way, this wasn't the first time. It's just the first time that, you know, a lot of people noticed it. I mean, he he cost them votes in 2016. He cost them votes in 2018 and he cost them votes in 2020. You know, you put in just a generic Republican candidate in those elections and the party's in a much better position right now, even even forgetting about the fact that this is sort of poison that Trump has become. But yes, the cardinal sin seems to be losing seats. The problem is it's not enough to just sort of discover this uh, among the elites. You've got to also get the memo out to the rank and file. And our polling suggests that that memo is not completely out, right? Most Republicans do not think it would be better for the party or for the United States if Donald Trump stepped away from politics. 
he still gets the most votes, first place votes. DeSantis has gained ground showing there's an interest in a Trump alternative, but it's by no means the case that most Republicans are saying, you know what, Trump is poison. We've got to give him the stiff arm. That's not happening at the base level. So let's talk about this, because I don't believe that Ron DeSantis or any of the other quote unquote Trump alternatives are generic Republicans. They are in the context of today, but the things that they've said and been complicit in are not generic Republicans of my era, pre-2016. So when you think about Trump voters, are they going to be okay with a quote-unquote generic Republican? Because I posit a non-Trump Republican still has to be in bed with MAGA to get through a primary. Let's put Trump aside for a second. He's not going to go away, but let's take him out of the equation for a second. I posit that as they get into bed with MAGA to extend a bad metaphor, the normies are never going to let them back in bed with them. The potential nominee has to make a choice early, and a generic Republican does not fire up the base today. I think that's absolutely true. I would say that there's no evidence right now what used to be a mainstream Republican, that that's the group that people, even those people who are looking for an alternative to Trump, are sort of gravitating toward. And as you say, I mean, Ron DeSantis is likely preferable to Trump, in my mind, solely because the only standard for preferable to Trump is somebody who would not destroy American democracy just to suit his own ego. I don't know for sure that Ron DeSantis wouldn't do that, but I also don't have evidence that he would and has. And Donald Trump, we've seen it with our own eyes. We, we know that he would be willing to do that. And so, but in terms of all the other stuff, I mean, Ron DeSantis is very much in the Trump mold. He's actually not as good a communicator as Trump. Trump actually is a good communicator. He knows how to get his signal to his marks. Ron DeSantis is not as interesting or effective at communicating as Trump. He's kind of boring in that way. But in terms of the stuff he says and the way he brands himself, you know, he's very much going for that MAGA group, right? This is where woke goes to die. And, you know, it's this sort of trolling of liberals. But it's performative. Trump does it naturally, as weird as that sounds. I mean, think about any other Republican presidential nominee or president, for that matter, who would stand on a rally stage in front of 25 or 30,000 people while YMCA by the village people plays and he does his silly dance and they go crazy for it. Ron DeSantis does that. They're going to be like, what's wrong with him? Is he having some sort of attack? It's the show, too, Alex, I think, is that so many Republican base voters it's not just about their revanchism and the resentment and the ugliness and the F you to everybody. It's the show. And can any of these other people even begin to create a show like Trump has? Because he is ultimately, I use this word like I would use it when I'm talking about like Adolf Hitler. He is a genius, but in a bad way, not in a good way. He certainly has instincts that make him very effective at what he does, and dangerously so, right? Dangerously so. It's hard to know who that candidate would be. The only, literally the only one that's being talked about in any serious way right now is Ron DeSantis, which is why in our poll, I mean, nobody else is getting meaningful numbers because that's because most of them nobody's ever heard of. I was a little bit relieved to see Tucker Carlson. We added him to the list. I was relieved to see him not getting any numbers because he's well-known and you might expect him to just by name ID get some numbers. You know, Mike Pence people know, and he's getting basically no traction. Right now, it's just DeSantis is kind of the vessel for 
ah, you know, I really like the stuff that Trump did, but I could go with a few less tweets and maybe a few less kind of crazy statements. And so DeSantis is the name I'm going to tell you. Is that what you think it is for the folks who are looking for the Trump alternatives? And I think this is important. They don't want rid of MAGA. They're just sort of tired of the antics. I think that's right. I mean, it depends on how you define MAGA. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of people out there who are great with kind of the stuff that Trump did. They really don't like a lot of what they see from the liberals, as they would say it. And they love the whole owning the libs thing. But yeah, they'd rather have somebody who maybe doesn't have quite the baggage as Trump. But at the same time, I see no evidence to suggest that there's a huge swath of Republicans who are saying, no way. Most Republicans still have him in their top three choices. There's not a lot of Republicans who are telling us anything suggesting that if Trump is the nominee, they're going to vote for the other party or something like that, or just sit it out. Amongst the Republican electorate, as you've studied it, are they sort of in line with Fox? It's immigration, it's wokeness, it's critical race theory. I've always been amazed and frankly frightened by how well the conservative, you know, radical right wing message machine moves. Do you see that in your research? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think immigration has really sort of crystallizes a lot of these kind of right wing, and it's not just in the US, it's happening in a lot of other places, this sort of right wing xenophobic movement a lot of which is based on this sense from white male Christian Americans who feel that this has been their country, this is their country. In some sense, being those things defines being American, at least sort of subconsciously for them. And there's this real sense of threat. And I think that that's a lot of what's mobilizing this, right? And I think that there's always been an element of race, for example, in conservative politics. So I think for a lot of people, opposition to higher taxes, for example, has always had a racial element, maybe not even a conscious racial element. I think belief regarding criminal justice has always had something of a racial element to it for a lot of people. And I think that you know there are some Republicans who, seeing this movement of the party to putting aside the dog whistle and just kind of saying that, you know, I think there's been a lot of people who have been really disillusioned and sort of discovering that, hey, you know what, a lot of the people in our midst, in our party, under our tent, have been really, really motivated by these less than admirable things, these very dangerous things. And Trump just sort of tapped into this reservoir in a very overt way, and I think it became dangerous. I will say that a lot of people were playing footsie with it in the past, right? So I think that a lot of Republican elites you know, when you would hear Mitch McConnell say things like, well, I take Obama at his word that he's a Christian, right? What does that, what does that mean? That's like a very soft way of saying, uh, who knows, but I take him at his word, right? That's the kind of thing you say about somebody that you think is lying. And, and all of that is just a signal to this group, like, hey, you know, I'm not going to really acknowledge you, but I'm okay. Come on, give us, give us your support, right? And, and you're maybe right. Maybe you're right. Donald Trump just came right out and said it, like, ah, he's, you know, he wasn't born in America. And then he just takes it to a new level with all this other stuff. That's the thing. So, you know, Trump was a, if not the progenitor, then certainly an accelerant of the birther movement. And this is where, you know, we talk about anti-democratic authoritarian stuff is, Okay, you know, finally, Obama produces the quote unquote long form birth certificate. And what does a Trump say? Of course he did. 
of course, Hawaii made it up. It's a democratic state, blah, blah, blah. Of course, they were going to do whatever it is they needed to to prove that he's actually a citizen. I don't really think about it, you know, but I don't know. People say, right, like there's always the straw man argument out there, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this, and this is something that happens in all of these disinformation campaigns, whether it's in Russia or everywhere else, is it's not even so much about convincing people of something. It's about making it so people don't know what to believe. You just put so much out there that people have no idea what is truth anymore, right? And you get, you know, you get this situation where, I mean, 70% or just under 70% of Republicans still to this day say that they don't think Biden's election is legitimate. I mean, that, that's unbelievable. And, and I have some research that suggests they're not just bullshitting us. They actually believe this, or at least a lot of them actually believe this. And part of that is because they've been told that what can you trust, right? There's information over here. Maybe that's not true. Maybe a little kernel of it is true. And then you've got this stuff that I don't like hearing over here from the mainstream media. And that's, oh, I've been told that's fake news. So you have sort of an event horizon that has emerged and it's dangerous. It's very dangerous, especially when democracy is the target. So let's talk about democracy for a second. So you noted that amongst older I guess, Democratic or Democratic voting voters in 2022, democracy was their top issue. We made a conscious decision probably in like September, October of 21, that from our perspective, that's what the race was going to be about. Because the entire Republican Party, to your point, starting with Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, absolved Trump of his sins for plotting and trying to carry out a coup. And as you pointed out, a vast majority, not just a bulk, but a vast majority of the voters believed it. But what did you see in your research that surprised you that, I mean, because look, legally and fairly elected President Joe Biden gave a speech in Philadelphia right in September about democracy, gave another one right before the election. What was it that you saw from your research that sort of drove democracy? Was it that like the messaging was working, that like this is what it's about? I don't know that this comes out of our polling because it's very hard to figure out sort of where people heard this, but the fact that it was so high on the list, and, and we don't have much to compare it to because, uh, you know- We never had to add it to the survey before. That's right. This was the first <laughs> time we had it on the survey because, you know, okay, threats to American democracy, that's not serious. That's not one of the top 30 issues. Well, guess what? There's a lot of stuff that used to be the domain of my comparative politics colleagues in terms of democratic backsliding and attitudes about this stuff that now we're having to take very seriously uh, in the United States. And, and by the way, I don't, you know, I don't want to be alarmist in the sense that I don't think we're on the verge of like a civil war. People talk about that. I do think there's going to be political violence. There already has been political. I mean, we had an assassination attempt on the Speaker of the House right before the election, right? We had political violence in a you know, decent-sized scale, pretty bumbling, on January 6th. And we see today that the people on the right, most Republicans try to downplay it, right? One of the things we see over and over again in our polls, we ask them, how would you describe those events? And Republicans always say a protest. Those events were a protest. What I think is much more dangerous in American politics, and, and I actually, I mean, January 6th was horrific, right? It was very visibly horrific. And you had the president of the United States behind the scenes like I say, pulling on any thread he could find, calling secretaries of state, applying pressure. I mean, imagine if this was a closer election. Imagine if it was just one state. Imagine, I don't know, were you working on the 2000 Bush campaign? I did. I was in Florida for five weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine if it was that situation, 400 something votes with the butterfly ballot 
that Trump had lost on in one state. I have no confidence that the Florida legislature wouldn't have sent another slate. Yeah, I mean, just th- that would be their slate, and we would have a constitutional crisis. And and in this case, even you know, if it were that close, who controls Congress matters, right? We found out in 2000 that a lot of the things that we think of as like backstops in democracy are just norms, and that if you've got somebody who's willing to just trample on norms in order to accomplish their goal, and if the party from which that person comes is willing to just sort of, you know, at least tacitly support what is happening, it can be very dangerous. And we don't want to be in a world where, in an America where if you have the power to steal an election, you can steal an election. And really the last stop in that is always, you know, there's lots of countries where an election happens, it's contested, and everybody waits to see what the military has to say. You know, I don't, I don't want to be in that situation here. And it's easy to get to that situation. I also think what's really easy to happen, and we see a little bit of it now with state legislatures maybe being able to overturn elections, is you get this gradual step-by-step erosion of democratic norms. And then before you know it, because most American voters are pretty happy, they're not that polarized, they're not paying that much attention to politics, and they would probably sit by and let a lot happen. And by the time they woke up and realized, hey, I've lost some basic rights here that I really care about. It would be too late. You can't say anything anymore because it becomes much too dangerous. And that's what I worry about. And history teaches us that's largely what happens. Yeah, that's how democracy dies. It's not, you know, a civil war, usually a civil war and some, you know, strongman comes in. We've seen that recently, right? We've seen it in Hungary. We've seen it in Turkey. For the most part, throughout history, when democracies die, it comes at the ballot box. And because too many people, oh, it's not a big deal. They'll never really do it. And that goes back to the whole wishful thinking thing. In fact, I wrote a piece last week about like, I wrote like snap out of it. Remember Cher from Moonstruck when she slaps Nick Cage in the face, like snap out of it. Like, I don't get how we convince people. And when I say people, maybe I'm talking about the elites as well. Like, no, guys like, oh, yeah, you know, they're not really going to screw with the debt ceiling. Yes, they are. They're not really going to screw with the intelligence committee. Yes, they are. Because there's this, as Stuart Stevens on our team calls it, this bias towards normalcy, right? As you said, most Americans are not radicalized. Most Americans are not hyperpolarized. Most Americans are getting up, going to work, trying to get the kids to school and everything else. And that stuff is all important. And that's what democracy is supposed to give you, is the ability to do that without worrying about whether or not some goon decides to storm the Capitol. But I do want to talk about polarization. So let's talk about those people who are polarized. What have you learned about them? To be clear, it depends on how you define polarization. But a lot of people are polarized if in the sense that they know which party they're in, they know which tribe they're in, and they're not really seriously considering positive information about the other tribe or negative information about their side. They're engaging in this motivated reasoning that shapes every way they think. So in that sense, most people are polarized. I don't really believe that much in independence, to be honest. Most of the time when someone tells me they're an independent now, it's pretty clear to me that they're actually a Republican who just doesn't want to say that they're part of this Republican Party. Well, I'm an independent. True independence. <laughs> and I believe you. I believe you. You're the one person I believe on that. But true independents are a very small chunk of the population, and most of them are not engaged at all. They're not likely to vote. But the nature of the polarization that we've observed is really about feelings. Early on, we used to look for polarization in issue positions and things like that. And, and really what the polarization 
that we have in this country is about identity, number one, and then that creates affect. That's why we call it affective polarization, affect being just feelings, right? And so literally it's the measurement of how do you feel about that party, one to a hundred? How do you feel about your party, one to a hundred? And the gap has increased tremendously you know, over time. And the big change has been in how you rate the other party. If anything, how you rate your own party has dipped a little bit. It used to be that you rated the other party zero to 100 in terms of 100 being warm and zero being very cold. It used to rate them around 50, right? That's like, I, used, I like to tell my students, that's a, you know, that's like a, a nice fall day, right? 50 degrees, not too bad. Uh, now it's in the 20s. That's a huge change in like 40 years, 30, 40 years. That is the nature of polarization that has changed, and it makes it so that it's easy to believe terrible things about the other side. You're less likely to be exposed to the other side. Now, having said that, I will say that I think polarization is the norm. I think polarization is to be expected. I think we're in equilibrium having partisan polarization. I think the period that you and I remember and that a lot of people look back to fondly, that was the anomaly. It's normal when you have two parties, a strong two-party system like we have here, for ideology to be strongly associated with party. It used to not be, right? It used to be partly because of the South and the fact that Republicans were the party of Reconstruction. And so for a couple generations, nobody would be a Republican in the South. It used to be that Democrats included the most conservative politicians and the most liberal politicians, right? And Republicans were kind of all over the spectrum. So that changed, you know. All sorts of other things, your, your race, your education level, your worldview, just, you know, do you see the world as a safe place that needs to be explored or do you see it as a dangerous place that you need to be protected from? Things like that that used to not be that correlated with party are now highly correlated with party. And that's normal. It's normal that if you have two parties that people would find their way to the one that's more in line with their opinions. And that's all great. Our problem is we have to make our system work under polarization because I think it's here to stay. We have to disincentivize, you know, just getting a win and not actually trying to cooperate and not actually trying to advance policy thing that we have set up. And we have to lower the temperature and we have to stop having these minoritarian institutions. So I, for example, first thing I would do is get rid of the filibuster. I think that's really bad because you don't necessarily want parties that aren't distinct. But you also, when you elect a party, you want them to actually be able to accomplish the things they said they were going to accomplish so that you can then say, hey, we like this or we didn't like this. Now we have a system where you have these distinct parties. They get into power. Nobody can really do very much of what they said. And so there's no accountability. It's very difficult for voters to hold them accountable. And what do they fall back on? They fall back on, well, this is my team and I'm voting for my team. And those people who may not be independents, but are persuadable, let's call them. Maybe that's a better word. It seems like pretty much now every two years, two or four years, the presidency notwithstanding, we're going to let those people run Congress, going to let these people run Congress, going to let those people run Congress, let these people. Because to your point, like nobody can get up ahead of steam, so nothing gets done. And then the party in the minority just kicks the hell out of the party in the majority for not getting anything done, even though they're probably part of the issue. Yeah. And they're mad at the few things that got done they're mad about because those things are not the product of compromise by any means. They're just a few things that have been sort of pushed through and they tend to be somewhat extreme. So yeah, it's a problem. I mean, now, if, you know, I would get rid of the electoral college. I think that's a problem in terms of our democracy. There's lots of minoritarian institutions, but the one that's easy to just get rid of is the filibuster. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think that you know the the filibuster is a rule. Yeah, it's not part of the Constitution. It's it's not part of the Constitution. No, I mean the Electoral College is part of the Constitution, and it was set up in a time that was what the 1780s. You would never set up a system like that. I mean, if you walked in, you know, if we were re just starting from scratch, right, and someone walked in with that system, people would you know sort of laugh at them. I mean, it was a ridiculous system given the way the country is set up right now. But I'm not under any illusion that that's about to change. I don't think that's that's going anywhere. But I think this is also, though, and this is for my Democratic friends in the audience, this is why it's also important to say, okay, I don't like the Electoral College. I don't like the fact that California has the same number of senators as Montana. Okay, but that's the game. That's the system. So you can either say, I don't like the system, which you can, and choose not to participate in it. Or you could say, I don't like the system, and I'm going to go find those people who can win in Montana, like a John Tester, who can be a conservative Democrat. But the other Democrats have to let him do that. And I think that's also a problem. Oh, it's a major problem. It's a major challenge. You need those votes if you're going to do things. The other thing I will say is that part of the responsibility here falls on a lot of Democrats for being low propensity voters. That's part of this dynamic here. Part of what happened in 2022 that made things shift in a direction that maybe wasn't what we expected is that a lot of Democrats who otherwise didn't turn out did turn out including young voters. And that's been a challenge for the Democratic Party for years. So I was doing a fundraiser in California last year, and, and someone says, how do we know that you actually are effective with these narrow band of Republican voters and not just making Democrats happy? And I said, well, why can't we do both? We know how to talk to these Republican voters, but here's something else we know. Happy Democrats vote and unhappy Democrats don't. Motivated Democrats participate. But I think also I'd be interested to see with those younger voters, those under 30 voters who voted Democratic, do you think they have a true fealty or love for the Democratic Party? Or was it a reaction, which would make sense to me, to the people who had taken away what is for them a fundamental right? I mean, as I said, women in America went to bed on a Thursday night, the freest people humanity had ever known. And on Friday afternoon, they weren't. So do you think that 2022 solved that low propensity problem? Or do you think it was something like a Dobbs that was a driver to those types of voters. But we got to go after them again, because that's my fear is that the wrong lessons will be taken from last year vis-a-vis -vis those low propensity voters. I don't think it's been solved at all. I mean, I think what we've seen the last few elections is that Donald Trump mobilizes Democratic voters very effectively. And something like the Dobbs decision mobilizes, especially certain Democratic voters, especially in specific places where there are things on the ballot perhaps related to reproductive rights. I think all of these things are things that make it so that a lot of Democratic voters who, as you say, have a lot of other things that are more important in their daily lives than politics. That's normal. But it's also important to recognize that some of these things you can't just let other people decide. And turning out to vote as a group is very, very important. Well, and, and think about it this way, too, is that to your point about most Americans throughout history have not paid attention to elections, right, or to politics until it was time to pay attention. You had to go out and do a bunch of persuading because there are a bunch of people who are probably up for grabs. Now there's a 24-7 persuasion machine that goes and goes and goes, right? It just it never quits. So to find those people who are persuadable is probably a needle in a haystack, needle in a stack of needles, I should say. Okay. Alex, before I let you go, where can our listeners and our viewers, welcome viewers, find you online and where can they find your work? So if you just you know search for UMass Poll, a lot of the polls that we've conducted there 
We sort of like to think of ourselves as bringing the sophistication of social science and political science specifically to polling. So we like to do things beyond the horse race. If you search for UMass Poll, we've, we've got a website. I've got a personal website, alexandertheoretis.com. And just you know, follow me on Twitter. I, I tend to post a lot of uh, poll numbers. That's how Reed discovered me. But I'd say that's the best way to track me down. Absolutely. And guys, go in. There's a ton of great stuff in there to learn and to understand why we are where we are and where we're headed. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Alex Theodoridis, thank you for joining me and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.